This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Robert Tracy McKenzie is professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College, where he teaches courses in U.S. history, the Civil War, and historiography. Before coming to Wheaton in 2010, McKenzie served for 22 years on the faculty at the University of Washington, where he received the university's Distinguished Teaching Award, was a member of the University of Washington Teaching Academy, and held the Donald A. Logan Chair of American History. He received the Ph.D. degree from Vanderbilt University and is the author of several award-winning books in addition to numerous reviews and articles. After publishing monographs with Oxford University Press and Cambridge University Press, his most recent work is The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History, published by InterVarsity Press. Dr. McKenzie, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's my pleasure to be a part, Dr. Muller. Well, I'm really glad to be having this conversation with you, first of all, because I think the book is worthy of conversation, but also because it gives us an opportunity for a rather wide-ranging conversation on how Christians should understand history. As a matter of fact, I want to commend your book, The First Thanksgiving, because of its subject matter in terms of the, the First Thanksgiving, and a very interesting conversation to be had about that. But I think the most significant achievement of your book is actually how it models a Christian understanding of history. And my guess is you wrote it with such an intention. Well, you're exactly right. I, I thought um, a book on the first Thanksgiving would would hopefully enable me to, to engage a broader audience. But I definitely uh, had, had bigger goals in mind. I, I chose the topic because I think it's a great context for uh, a more broader approach to what it means as a believer to think about the past in a faithful way. So let's talk about that, because I think the early chapters of your book are actually just gold in terms of helping to shape the Christian mind and thinking about history. You raise a host of issues, but let me just ask you, when it comes to how Christians most often misunderstand history, where do we most often get it wrong before we even talk about what it means to get it right? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, I would would generalize by saying the the pitfall that I think I see most often in the way Christians engage the past uh, is one in which we begin to, um, one, impute authority to the past, where God is not uh, granted it. That is to say, we take figures from the past and we treat them as if their example is automatically to be followed. Uh, and in the process, we begin to confuse our identity as believers. As an American historian, I'm most uh, sensitive to the way in which um, uh, 21st century Christians remember American history and its relation to uh, the Christian faith. Uh, and I think we often fall into patterns of thinking uh, that really conflate our identities as believers and our identities as um, Americans. Well, one of the points you make, and it's a very interesting point, is that many evangelicals tend to look to history in order to mine it for heroes. And these heroes, you warn, can often turn into idolatrous figures simply by fact that they are often given an authority that God did not grant them. Can you explain that a bit further? Absolutely. Uh, I I start with the idea that that searching uh, in the past for heroes is not only acceptable, it's probably a desirable thing. I, I, I think of how uh, Paul r- writes in First uh, Corinthians, uh, he tells the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And I think it's a good thing for us to find out godly role models uh, to follow. But it's a very 
uh, subtle transformation that often follows, where we begin to impute authority. And I can just give you an example of that, uh, a, a very simple one. Uh, if we're discussing the role of uh, faith in the in the public square in contemporary America, uh, and we quote from George Washington or John Adams or some other figure from the revolutionary generation who says something about the importance of Christian faith in the public sphere, uh, and then we cross our arms and uh, basically uh, imply that that settles the matter, uh, then what we have effectively done is we have quoted a, a founder, much like we might quote scripture, uh, and we have said automatically a position that someone has held uh, is a position that obliges us today. And, and that may seem like a subtle difference, but it's an enormous one, I think. Uh, and I do think it's a uh, snare that um, traps us all the time. And yet it's one I want to argue is understandable. And I also want to conjecture that what we're looking at here is a significant departure uh, amongst younger evangelicals from the generations uh, 20 or 40 years removed. I, I don't think those previous generations were quite so hungry for historical heroes mm. as the current generation is. I'll give you some evidence mm-hmm. of that. Uh, what, what we have is a massive republication industry right now going on in the evangelical world. Uh, the People would be hard-pressed to find uh, the complete writings of John Owen in print in any place for any reason 30 years ago. Now the, the entire works of, of one of the most mm-hmm. significant Puritans is now available and, and for sale in many local bookstores. And uh, there's paraphernalia also that it's, it's very understandable out there, artwork, uh, all, all kinds of things like that. And I'm going to argue that under the pressures of this fast secularizing age, and especially in a theological movement that, that lacks a, a, an obvious patriarchy, I, I think there is a, a great hunger for that kind of heroic figure to be found in history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you're, you're probably exactly right. I, uh, I think we are a culture that, that hungers for celebrities. I was listening to a lecture just last week by Paul Vitz, who is a Christian psychologist at NYU, and he was he was saying that we, we hunger for, his specific example, we hunger for unselfish male examples uh, in a culture that is um, so materialistic and individualistic. So I, I do think it is understandable, absolutely. We just, we need to be discerning, we need to be wise in the way that we uh, address that kind of natural desire. Well, I think the antidote that you provide uh, in this book to that danger is, is actually helpful to us, and that is making sure we're looking at the person in the context and, uh, and, and as a totality. Uh, because uh, even as we look to uh, the magisterial reformers, Calvin and, and Luther, for example, uh, both of whom uh, hang in my study as, uh, <laughs> as portraits and, and hang large in my life as influences, uh, one would not want to emulate them in every conceivable way. And as a matter of fact, we would probably find ourselves very uncomfortable actually being in their presence or in their congregation if we actually mm-hmm. came to historical terms of what they're about. But nonetheless, they do exert an extremely positive influence and, and provide something of an intellectual and theological anchor in, uh, in very turbulent times. Yes, uh, well, well put. I, I, um, um, I couldn't agree more. I, I think... One of the things that I suggest in the book is just a simple principle that we remember that um, uh, that the fall touches everyone. Uh, I think we're skeptical of, of golden ages because of that. Uh, but having said that, that, that simply should sort of temper our uh, enthusiasm for individuals, should not prevent us from uh, giving thanks for, for those who have uh, offered examples that, that we benefit from.
So what do we do with the past? I mean, there it is. And it's your business as a professional historian and as a professor of history to help a generation of students and beyond that, the reading and learning public to understand how to come to terms with the past. So Mm -hmm. where do we get started? So where do we get started? I I think uh, we we start, first of all, with a kind of uh, attitude of expectancy. Um, Rowan Williams, who is a former Archbishop of Canterbury, writes in one of his books that we should expect gifts from the past. I I think uh, about that and and feel very strongly about that, that uh, we are entering into a conversation that transcends generations, centuries, millennia, uh, about permanent sort of perpetual questions of importance. And we go into that conversation, uh, I think, expecting or open to the possibility of of life-changing encounter, of of hearing things, of hearing truths that uh, in our own culture perhaps we are a little bit um, uh, blind to. But having that expectancy for um, genuine education, I I think we combine that with a kind of skepticism of our own biases, and in particular a skepticism uh, that reminds us of our tendency to recreate the past in our own image. One of the things that I talk about in the book is the tendency that we have uh, that goes hand-in-hand with our belief that the past is important, and that's a tendency to to mine the past, uh, as I put it, to search the past for ammunition uh, rather than uh, enlightenment. Uh, And so I think we need to to be very careful. I've come to the conclusion that part of what it means to think Christianly when we go to the past is actually to examine our own hearts at the front end of the process. And we ask ourselves, what is it that we're looking for? Why does it matter to us? Uh, And sometimes we go to the past simply for uh, entertainment. But very often, I think, when Christians go to the past and think that there's something at stake there, it's because they have already made a certain kind of commitment to a public uh, position and simply expect the past to provide the ammunition that allows them to prove the point to which they're already committed. And the danger with that is that we never learn anything. Uh, we, we find what we look for, uh, and it may even be effective in a kind of pragmatic way, but we will not encounter a fundamentally uh, sort of different or challenging way of thinking about the question that causes us to sort of stop and pause and go back and reexamine uh, what we think we, we understand. But it doesn't actually gain much for us. Uh, my own uh, academic work is at the intersection of historiography and theology in the field of historical theology, and uh, the history of the Church, and in particular the history of theology, reminds us that if we don't get the whole story, at least as much of the story as we can get, we're going to miss very key issues and uh, and integral parts of argument and development, uh, without which, quite frankly, what we mind, to use your verb there, uh, just isn't going to be all that valuable to us. It might be ammunition for an argument, but it doesn't actually help us to understand how uh, how minds change, how issues were defined, and how in a particular context uh, we, we actually learn how, in the case of, of my research, the church in particular and the larger society around it was trying to think through uh, various issues. And it seems to me that when you, you look at the kind of historiography you lay out, and you're writing to Christians very clearly in this book, you're really saying that, uh, that the past isn't really just important or, or valuable but rather, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, without it, we, we, we basically aren't having the kind of conversation with the dead that any mature, honest thinker needs constantly to have. Absolutely. I mean, one of the 
the um, <clears throat> verses that I come back to over and over again in the book and also in, in my teaching uh, is from a, a rather uh, brief um, uh, allusion in the book of Job where one of the individuals that comes to, to interact with Job, uh, a man named Bildad, uh, says to, to Job, and this is sort of my paraphrase, but he tells him if you're trying to understand your situation, uh, go to our fathers and go to their fathers and, and inquire of them, inquire of former ages. And Bill Day concludes, he says, for we were born yesterday yes. and know nothing. And, and I love that uh, phrase. And, and I think when we, when we seek for wisdom, uh, while all the, uh, in the process shutting ourselves off from the 93 94% of human beings who have lived before us and are no longer living, there's a kind of uh, incredible and incredibly arrogant uh, provincialism to that. Uh, and I, I fully believe if we're truly committed to search for wisdom, uh, then we have to practice what Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. We have to let those who have gone before us uh, also have a voice in the conversation. Yaroslav Pelikan, who was the Sterling Professor of History at Yale, made a very similar point to just Chesterton there in which he said that the uh, the fact that one might ignore history uh, would make about as much sense as denying that one has ancestors. And, and then he went on to say mm. that the conversation with the dead in, in this historical sense is uh, as necessary as the conversation with the living, because the living are mm. inexplicable, uh, but with reference to the dead. And, uh, of course, you also have C.S. Lewis, and I believe you cite this in your book, one of his most common uh, uh, references to history in his in his. In the introduction, actually, he wrote to one of the Patristic Fathers when he says that the temptation is to practice a certain form of chronological snobbery. Yes. And, and that's an yes. intellectual fashion that seems to be very uh, au courant in, in terms of the Absolutely. academy at any given time. Absolutely. Yes, I love the, the phrase that, uh, that Lewis uh, uses there, chronological snobbery. He actually uh, has offered many um, concepts to me that I found very useful as a story. In fact, my uh, real appreciation for Lewis has grown as I've found more and more ways that his thinking actually enriches my uh, thinking hi- historically. You know, one um, of the things that also raises is how his education is different than our own. I mean, at the, by the time that uh, C.S. Lewis was in uh, what we would now call a high school or upper school, uh, he had been steeped in history such that, uh, according to one of his biographers, he was able basically to walk through the medieval eras uh, as if he, uh, he he had he had spoken to people from them, and of course that informs yeah. his, his writings. Yes, his 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 education would have been, uh, as you put it, steeped in ancient literature, uh, language, and history. Uh, and and I think, if I understand correctly, uh, from his biographers, was very troubled when uh, the English universities began to introduce modern history, which was uh, anything uh, I think uh, after the. Um, uh, Reformation, uh, and so he really was uh, someone who was constantly drawing from uh, a deep kind of uh, legacy and heritage from yes. earlier earlier thinkers. You know, and, as I recall, he refused to teach any literature written after 1830 because he thought it's, <laughs> it's there was simply no way to know in a hundred years if the if the literature uh, really had value. And uh, so right. th- that's the opposite of chronological snobbery, perhaps. But I want to go to something <laughs> that you wrote back in 2004. And uh, you are writing, as an historian, to historians about the generation you are now teaching. And I'm going to read to you from an essay that you wrote entitled Christians Teaching History. You said this, 
I find that the typical student who sits in my classes is both an historical objectivist and a philosophical relativist. When it comes to reading their textbooks or listening to my lectures, such students think in terms of cold, hard facts. Implicitly, they believe that historical truths are objectively knowable, that they are easily ascertained, and that they should be universally acknowledged. When the topic turns from truths to truth, however, to ultimate questions about transcendent moral values or the existence of God, for example, they immediately become determined relativists. I found that fascinating. Play that out for me. <laughs> uh, it's good for you to dig out that uh, statement from almost a decade ago. Uh, as, as you mentioned to your listeners uh, at the outset, I did teach in a secular context for um, more than two decades, and one of the things that I was thinking about in that context was ways uh, in which to uh, encounter the past and in the process uh, naturally to raise um, eternal questions. And uh, one of the things that did strike me in that process uh, as I went through it in multiple iterations was that uh, students were very comfortable uh, in compartmentalizing uh, the life of the mind, very comfortable in compartmentalizing uh, issues that uh, operate within what you might consider a disciplinary context within the context of history, what it means to think historically, to set that apart into one category of their mind totally separate from uh, issues of ultimate uh, purpose and meaning, uh, issues that we would think of as leading uh, to eternal questions with religious um, religious answers. And one of the things that was a challenge for me was to try to get students to sort of reunify those two aspects of their uh, of their thinking uh, and find in the study of the past um, sort of permanent permanent questions, eternal questions, uh, and to press them to try to come up with consistent, in, internally consistent answers. Uh, and one of the things I think it's an indictment of the of the modern secular decentralized university. Very few students felt any pressure or any obligation whatsoever to have a consistent philosophies of life, um, and and it was a constant challenge to try to to make an argument that that was um, not the way it ought to be. So you delivered a sermon of sorts, you say, <laughs> on the first day of each new class there right. in that secular environment. So to just give us a summary of that sermon because I, I sure. found it really helpful. Right. I, I called it what I called sermons for the secular classroom. Teaching in a, in a, in a large research university that was aggressively secular, there were certain boundaries I often uh, felt uh, and, and really tried not to cross if I could avoid it. But I tried to make arguments that were uh, intellectually substantive that would, at the very least, um, I hoped encourage students to reconsider some of their fundamental um, uh, understandings. And one of the sermons... Uh, that I would uh, often uh, do, uh, often as a concluding uh, lecture, was to challenge students to think about some of what we had observed when we would study American history, for example, uh, and to try to evaluate it. Uh, we would talk a lot about democracy as a kind of a system uh, in which the majority has its way. Uh, and then I would just remind them that uh, the uh, removal of Native Americans in the 1830s was democratic by that standard, and the uh, support of slavery was democratic by that standard, and the creation of a segregated Jim Crow system in the late 19th century was democratic by that standard. Uh, and it was basically trying to, to push them into a, a corner to recognize that sometimes the majority isn't right. And I think to believe, to acknowledge one moment ever to acknowledge to yourself that the majority is not right raises enormous 
philosophical questions. Uh, because if the majority can be wrong, we have to understand some standard that obliges the majority, that uh, restrains them. Uh, in this uh, and I, Excuse I'm me. sorry? I would just say that uh, I would uh, take the students to the brink of that, sort of the brink of the, of the precipice, and I would say, uh, where is that standard going to come from? Uh, and it seemed to me that there were just a few possible uh, answers. Uh, that, that standard would be something that, uh, that we invented, or it would be something that we discovered that had an existence outside of cultural construction. Uh, and um, uh, I, I tried to make the students feel uncomfortable. Um, I'm not sure how effective um, that I was. But, but one of the things that, that I, I just discovered all the time is that students ultimately uh, had been acculturated in the modern university to think that... Um, philosophical consistency was simply not that important. And so you asked them to consider history as a discipline that's not just about things that happened in the past, but rather a discipline that, to use your words, uh, engages the heart and requires inner work. Uh, inside the only, the only reason for studying it, I would say. I, I, I put on my syllabi that uh, at its best to study the past is a conversation with the dead about what we should value and how we should live. Uh, and if we do not encounter something in it that uh, challenges us deeply uh, about the values that we hold most dearly, there's not much point in studying it, I think. I think it's really important that you had a professor here in a secular university at that time, the University of Washington, presenting to students in that secular context very much up front and with great intellectual honesty what he called sermons for secular students. You know, listening to how he describes that and reading about it in his writings, it leads me to believe that Christian students, indeed evangelical students, are often in need of those very same sermons. Professor McKenzie, this book is The First Thanksgiving, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history. Why this book? Why about the pilgrims? Why now? Great question, uh, Al. Uh, for me, it, it emerges or, or began of an evolving sense of, of personal calling. I, I spent much of my professional career doing what academics do, which means primarily producing scholarship for other academics. And and I really began to come under a sense of conviction of a, of a call to to communicate, to connect in some way uh, with Christians outside the academy. And as I began to think about that, uh, what I felt called uh, really to do was to enter into conversation with Christians uh, about the intersection between our faith and our encounters with the past, about what it might mean uh, to think Christianly, if we want to use that phrase, uh, about the past. Uh, and I thought, well, I can write a very dry sort of abstract treatise on the topic and, and uh, have an audience of a handful, or maybe there's another way to go about it. Maybe there's a way to uh, revisit a familiar story, a story that Americans would find accessible, that they might find sort of intrinsically important, uh, and use that story as a context within which really to model what it would mean uh, to be responsible in one's encounter with the, with the past. So I, I decided, as I thought about it more and more, that the, the first Thanksgiving uh, episode had a lot of ingredients that uh, were really key. It, 
the, the Thanksgiving holiday is something that we impute religious significance to, I think many Americans would. It's actually a civil holiday, however. It's, it's uh, accorded by the state, not by the church, so it has that dimension. And then we associate it with a particular historical moment. So when I thought about it, it really sort of intertwines religious belief, national identity, and historical memory. Uh, and so to me, that was the perfect uh, combination of uh, ingredients. So I thought, I'll, I'll try to retell the story and sort of think out loud along the way uh, and hopefully raise some issues that um, American Christians would benefit from, from uh, engaging. Well, I think no doubt you did, and so you left behind the Civil War and its aftermath for a bit and, uh, and went back a couple of centuries uh, in, in terms of time. But I want to ask you a pointed question in this. Given all the controversies about Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving, uh, the, uh, the war of the historian, so to speak, especially the popular level in which you have the secularists on one side arguing a very strong secular argument on the other side, pushing back, you have people who are claiming – Basically, that uh, the, the first Thanksgiving is proof positive uh, of the fact uh, of two things, actually, of the fact that we are an inherently Christian nation and of the fact that seculars mm-hmm. hate that and will do anything to deny it. And, <laughs> and so you, you, you have that issue out there. I, I just have to believe that that controversy had to be at least in part what interests you as an historian. Well, it, it is. Uh, I, I would say that in, in my own mind, because the audience that I was anticipating was always primarily, uh, I think, going to be a, a Christian audience, and I was going to speak very openly as a Christian to Christians about how to think Christianly, uh, the kind of issue that I expected would loom most large would be uh, one of the two that you mentioned, which is the the, um, the claim that many would make uh, that the, the story of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving is sort of Exhibit A, uh, for the argument uh, that America was founded as a Christian nation. Uh, and I did want to sort of push back at that, but push back at it in a in a sort of indirect way. I mean, one of the things that I think the book does, I hope, uh, is that readers who follow along uh, how our memory of Thanksgiving has evolved over the last four centuries might recognize that Christians have been sort of guilty of inventing a history uh, just as much as uh, perhaps secularists have. Well, inventing it on the one hand, and perhaps on the other hand, appropriating it unthinkingly and uh, unaware of the yes. fact that uh, that much of it, just uh, to put it bluntly, isn't so. But yes. the point I want to come back to as an historical theologian is the real story is infinitely more interesting yes. and, and, yes. actu- and actually more helpful to us as Christians trying to uh, to understand what, what we should and, and, and must learn from the past. So I want to step back a little bit and say that uh, that your attention to the pilgrims themselves and to the background of English separatism is, I think, invaluable and, and will be, for many people, the first thing they've ever read. I, I did my doctoral mm-hmm. work uh, largely under a, a professor, uh, Dr. Timothy George, now at the Beeson Divinity School, who wrote his doctoral dissertation at Harvard on John Robinson. You know, the, this, is, this is coming into clearly theological territory, but an area of, of history that even the most active evangelical and intellectually aware evangelical generally doesn't even know about. So, so take us back there. When you, when you begin to tell this story, you do not begin in Plymouth, either one, in the New World or right. the Old. You begin elsewhere. Right. Tell us why. Right. Yeah. Well, part of it is uh, just a sort of article of faith among historians, which is that context is, is crucial, and it's always crucial. Uh, and in fact, if we don't understand the context, we're fooling ourselves if we think we understand any particular historical moment. So I, I do think you sort of always take a running start uh, at any episode that interests you. And for this particular example, that meant 
uh, going back uh, not um, just a, a short period of time, but uh, more than a century, uh, to understand the context from which that Scrooby congregation in the north of England uh, had emerged. So in the first part of the book, I, I just try to situate uh, the um, the forerunners of that congregation uh, in the larger currents that are going on in the period of the Reformation, both in Europe and uh, in England. Uh, the uh, pilgrims, if we're to understand them rightly, we have to see that they're really a a group of dissenters within dissenters, in a sense. Uh, they're growing out of the Puritan movement uh, in England, which is a, a group within the Church of England that's convinced that the um, uh, the, the kinds of changes of the uh, Elizabethan settlement, as it was called, the, the way in which the Anglican Church had uh, ultimately come down uh, on the qu- uh, questions that had been uh, raised by the Reformers, that that was, was simply an insufficient uh, uh, reform of the church of the uh, the corruptions that they believe Catholicism had gradually uh, introduced. The Scrooby congregation is actually a, a subset within that Puritan movement that we remember as separatists. I, I can remember when I first encountered separatists, I thought, well, uh, what we're really encountering here is simply a difference of opinion over strategy. That that most uh, Puritans believe that the Anglican Church could be uh, sufficiently reformed from within that the separatists really believe that it needs to happen from uh, sort of uh, uh, outside of uh, the confines of the Anglican Church. And that doesn't begin to capture the difference. The separatists have come to the conclusion uh, that the uh, Anglican Church was no true church at all, Uh, and that, in fact, having come to that conclusion, if they were to continue within the church, they would come under God's judgment. So they actually are quite critical of Puritans who aren't willing to come out from uh, the Anglican Church, uh, and in fact will dispute over time whether it's even acceptable ever uh, to listen to a sermon from a Puritan who's refused to come out. Let me ask you to fast forward here just a bit. Uh, just to summarize, you have the Reformation, and then in the Church of England you have the Elizabethan Settlement. The Puritans mostly work within the Church of England, still trying to bring about reform, but a group of more radical Puritans, the Separatists, leave the Church of England, and as you say, no longer consider it even to be a true church. And a good number of them, due to the political pressures of being outside of uh, the established religion in in Great Britain, uh, and in England in particular, they go to the Netherlands, and particularly to Leiden, a a liberal culture, a rather liberal city, and there they enjoy religious liberty, but they're also in danger of becoming Dutch, uh, which means that they're in danger of, uh, of losing a lot of their moral commitments, especially amongst their young people as well. And so they're desperate to find a place, not where they can enjoy religious liberty. You make the point they have that in Leiden, but rather where they can enjoy religious liberty for themselves and at the same time establish a truly reformed church. Correct. Absolutely. I, I think you, you've uh, summarized it wonderfully. Uh, the, the way I always uh, try to emphasize is that we have to remember that that migration of the Scrooby congregation that ultimately culminates in, uh, in New England is a two-stage uh, migration. Uh, and so the motives that propel them ultimately to Holland are different in some degree from the motives that propel them to North America. Uh, they are interested in uh, a place where they can uh, model true worship as they understand it, uh, but they certainly are hoping that it will be a place where there's much greater economic opportunity than they had had uh, in Leiden where there would be the freedom to um, raise their families uh, as they thought proper, 
Uh, and I think part of that involved uh, perpetuating English culture, uh, at least aspects of, of English culture. Clearly. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. So the, and, an uh, agrarian, and an agrarian culture. They really didn't fit in in the industrial They, they don't fit in Leiden of, of because Leiden. there are minimal opportunities, many of them maybe half, as many as half, are earning their their livings as uh, as weavers in some way in the textile industry, but that was not how they were trained. Uh, and it was certainly very foreign uh, from the culture that they left in England. So you make the point that the urgency to actually take this incredibly perilous journey, and I'm going to ask you to spell that out just a little bit, uh, really comes from this impetus that they are driven by their theological beliefs and their their search for a true and pure church. They're, they're driven from England to Leiden and then in an effort to maintain subsequent generations within their own church and to sustain themselves they take this very perilous journey, and they come to the new world. By the way, one of the things you say in the book is that we should be very careful not to say that religious liberty in itself is what drove them. And, and what I wanted to say back to you in the book is, and their concern for religious liberty, we need to be also historically honest, was for themselves uh, as they right. were establishing their community. They really were not at this point very interested in what we would now call the separation of church and state. That, that, yeah. that, that is a historical uh, misclaim. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes the pilgrims have been um, uh, condemned, uh, often by unsympathetic voices, as, as hypocritical, and they're thinking about religious freedom. They leave the old world because of religious persecution, and they refuse to grant religious toleration to others when they come to North America. I don't think that that's fair, and I don't think they were ever motivated to come to America by what we define typically in the 21st century as a commitment to religious freedom. Uh, they believed that the Scripture uh, provided sufficient uh, guidance to what worship that was uh, honoring to God looked like, uh, and they wanted an environment where they could uh, create that. Uh, it was never the idea that sometimes is attributed to them that what they desired most was to be able to uh, worship according to, quote, the dictates of their own conscience. That's a, that's a phrase that would have been wholly foreign to their worldview and actually not very common in America for another couple of centuries. Yeah, that kind of subjectivity uh, just doesn't fit. Right. One other point, just to test this with you, and, and, and to speak as a theologian who's been looking at the same historical terrain, uh, when you think about the Puritans, and in particular in this case the Pilgrims, I think one of the things we have to recognize is, is the centrality of, of their commitment to the notion of covenant. And, yes. and so they were intending to establish a, a civitas, a city, that was not just as a church, but as an entire community, uh, understood to be within the same covenantal relationship. So I would make the argument that they they understood themselves not to be establishing a nation. Uh, they, they weren't right. they weren't trying to do that at all. They considered themselves Englishmen and Englishwomen who were who were there as as an extension of the of the British uh, the English crown at least by necessity. But uh, but they did see themselves as establishing a colony. And within that colony, a church. And the distinction between the two in our eyes uh, is a rather modern invention. I, I absolutely, uh, absolutely agree uh, with you. Their, their, their vision just is not ours. And I think you're exactly right that that concept of covenant uh, is central. Um, uh, and, and I think when we read that the covenant that, that uh, Congregation Scrooby uh, enters into, uh, they really pledged themselves one to, to the Lord and pledged themselves one to another. And that's part of what I think we lose when we think about their motivations to come to North America. Um, uh, some will say it's entirely because of religious persecution. Others, many political conservatives today, 
uh, will say that the main reason the pilgrims came was for economic opportunity, but they associate that as a kind of um, free-for-all, everyone get what you can. What strikes me about the pilgrims is that they believe that the economic uh, severity that they encountered in Leiden was causing their congregation gradually just to, to erode uh, as more and more That's individuals right. became disheartened and had to go elsewhere for opportunity. And how many times in our own culture does someone uh, who has an opportunity for a better job leave a congregation and go? These individuals said, no, we will relocate as a congregation in order to allow ourselves to, to continue to uh, bond together, uh, and we'll find a place where that's possible. So you do believe that the first Thanksgiving happened? <laughs> Uh, there was certainly an event in the fall of 1621 uh, that was a kind of celebration of God's goodness in the harvest. And that was an historical event that's accessible to us through a slim uh, stratum of data, but we, we do have it. And yet out of that, someone has concocted a massive tradition complete with artwork and customs and supposedly historical accounts about an event evidently written by people, well, a century or more long after the event took place. Right. There, there's one letter uh, that was written by a participant uh, at the time uh, that included a brief allusion to the event, four sentences, 115 words, and that's the totality of the evidence about that actual autumn 1621 event. Uh, that letter was published in a collection in England uh, in 1622, and then actually sort of falls out of circulation. It was probably never published in many editions to begin with. Uh, and it's not rediscovered until the 1820s uh, in a library in uh, Philadelphia, and it's not published again in the United States until 1841. So the, the actual evidence about the first Thanksgiving doesn't really see the light of day in America for 220 years after the event. And so much of the way that Americans remember uh, Thanksgiving is done before there's any reference to the actual Pilgrim celebration in 1621. They and know can, that there's a kind of tradition that has evolved, but they don't associate it with the pilgrims per se. And we can blame much of this confusion on none other than Jane Austen, but not that Jane Austen. <laughs> Different Jane Austen, <laughs> a, a middle-aged New England housewife who's writing uh, a lot of romance novels in the late um, 1880s and early 1890s, and she writes one based in Plymouth, uh, which is about 99% invention. But it's incredibly popular. It's picked up by uh, popular magazines. The Ladies' Home Journal serializes part of it. And really, we associate, I think we, I should say we should attribute most of our cultural memory of the first Thanksgiving to this uh, New England housewife who's writing in 1889. So your book and its specific argument in this case sent me on a little historical investigation. I'm going to test a theory with you here. Okay. It seems to me that you can draw a line from Jane Austen, this Jane Austen, the uh, romance writer, uh, there in the uh, 19th century, you can draw a line from her all the way to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his declaration, <laughs> because it looks to me that his presidential declaration is largely dependent upon her work. It's probably true. I, c I can't say for sure uh, about that causal connection. But well, at least the, the influence, case. the story he cites is is basically yep. the story she tells. No, nope, you're you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And and interestingly enough, he's really uh, one of the first presidents to make any reference whatsoever to the Pilgrims. Uh, when he's uh, proclaiming a Thanksgiving holiday. So and what about really Abraham about. Lincoln? What about, you know, set the record straight. Abraham Lincoln, we remember, is the president who begins uh, the, the national Thanksgiving holiday. But that holiday is not rooted uh, really in history, uh, in, in a sense. So when, when Lincoln issues the proclamation in 1863, he's not making any reference whatsoever to a tradition, uh, to anything that's happened in the American past. 
he's talking about God's uh, faithfulness in the midst of the national trial. Uh, so it's very contemporary in its orientation. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why Thanksgiving is not celebrated in the South very much at all, uh, really until about the close of the 19th century. It's remembered as a kind of Yankee holiday. Well, as tempting as it is to go there, I'm going to simply say <laughs> I, 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 I want to speak for millions of Americans who will resent you taking Thanksgiving away from us uh, in terms of all the paraphernalia of the holiday that many Americans would at least like to attribute to the pilgrims. For instance, turkey. You say very clearly in the original uh, the documentary evidence there's reference to fowl, but it would be more likely to be other fowl than turkey that they ate. That's correct. That's, that's correct. We do have visitors who go to Plymouth. Uh, In the 1620s, they're talking about the wild turkeys there. They're saying they are so fast, almost impossible to bring down. Uh, On the other hand, they're saying that the the ponds uh, around Plymouth just get totally carpeted uh, with ducks and geese and other waterfowl in the fall, and that um, blasting them out of the water is is child's play. So it's almost certain that it wouldn't have been uh, turkey. I I really hate to take that uh, away from from America, but that's probably true. Well, I don't think they're going to stop eating turkey, but at least uh, <laughs> at least they may have more historical awareness as they're eating. As a matter of fact, uh, you say if you're looking at a feast at this time in terms of the pilgrims as they actually were establishing their colony, they more likely be feasting on eels and turnips than on uh, sweet potatoes, which they saw as an aphrodisiac, and turkey. Yeah, yeah, we we do know that they uh, ate eels. William Bradford, one of the things that he praises about Plymouth uh, is that the eels are plentiful. Uh, they're fat, wholesome, and sweet, uh, as he describes them. Uh, so, yeah, I don't expect that to catch on, though. And the early uh, multicultural agenda of the Puritans and the Pilgrims here, in this case, meeting uh, and, and asking the Indians in, it turns out you're arguing that the larger historical evidence actually accessible to us is that the Indians were indeed there, the Native Americans, but they probably showed up because they were hungry. Yeah, we, we, we can't say for sure uh, either way, but the, the testimony that survives does not say explicitly that they were invited. Uh, and some of the same pilgrim writers from the period do tell of other episodes uh, where they actually travel to uh, the uh, main camp of the Wampanoag and they ask uh, the chief there, Massasoit, not to come anymore uninvited. After all, they're short on food and they can't, um, can't feed them. So we know that the, the uh, Wampanoag were in the habit of stopping by uninvited, and there's no particular reason to doubt that that's what happened uh, in this case. Well, we won't go into detail here, but you point out that many of our visual images of Thanksgiving, especially rooted in American later renderings uh, of, the, of the event, actually mislead us more than instruct us. But I, I want you to point to why these, uh, these pilgrims might have been particularly thankful given the fact that they did have this harvest. Talk about the loss of life and and the tragedy Mm -hmm. that marked their first beginnings here in this new colony. Absolutely. One of the things that I don't want the book to be is a kind of study uh, that says everything you thought you knew is wrong. I actually find a great deal to admire uh, in the Pilgrim story, and and one of the things I admire most is that they uh, clearly do purpose to celebrate God's kindness in the midst of what we would consider, I think, just untold tragedy. Um, many people understand that of the 102 passengers of the Mayflower, uh, that exactly half uh, are going to pass away during that first winter. If we break that down, uh, the death toll is is not evenly distributed across the, the uh, passengers. It hits uh, women and it hits adults more than it hits males and children. 
So of the 18 uh, wives who are, are passengers on the Mayflower, 14 die before the spring. Uh, and uh, by the time of that celebration in the fall of 1621, there are only four adult women. That's one of the things we rarely really capture in the pictures of the first Thanksgiving. There are only four adult women, and just over half of the, of the number are children. Uh, and so that uh, Thanksgiving celebration is a gathering disproportionately of widowers and orphans. Uh, and that's part of the, the story that I think we lose sight of. It gives a poignancy to the event that we can all too easily lose. Once again, the reality is far greater than our cultural mismemory. And I think that's a very important point, especially for Christians to understand. You end the book on a theological note. You might not intend so to do, but you do. And you point out that perhaps the greatest thing we can learn from the pilgrims is the fact that we, too, as Christians, are pilgrims. Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. I, I feel so strongly about that. One of the ways that we have remembered the pilgrim story uh, is to remember them as travelers, as they thought of themselves. But we think of them as travelers uh, to the promised land of the future United States. And, and I'm not just saying that uh, figuratively. I, I quote in the book many instances of um, Thanksgiving uh, orations that are given where the pilgrims are imagined standing on Plymouth Rock and seeing through eyes of faith the great and powerful nation that will rise up on the beginnings uh, that they lay. Uh, and they just don't think about it themselves that way at all. William Bradford, when he says they knew that they were pilgrims, it's very clearly in context, quoting the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He's talking about a passage that refers to those heroes of the faith as strangers and pilgrims uh, in this world as having their, their, their eyes set on a heavenly country. Uh, and, and that, to me, is the, is the single most important message that I want to take this Thanksgiving season from the pilgrims. I, I want to recapture that sense that the world is not my home uh, and, and yearn for that kind of eternal perspective uh, as, we, as we make sense of our earthly sojourn. One of the earliest Christian leaders spoke of this by suggesting that Christians must always remember that we are at home everywhere and at the same time, nowhere. And we are, until Jesus comes, a pilgrim people. Robert Tracy McKenzie, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. My pleasure, Al. I really enjoyed that conversation with Professor Robert Tracy McKenzie. His new book really gives us an opportunity to reconsider Thanksgiving, indeed the first Thanksgiving, and how we enjoy and contemplate such things in terms of our memory, our historical memory. And, of course, what you have in this book is a tour de force of how Christians should understand history in the first place. That's what I think will be the greatest enduring value of the book. I do think many people will probably pick up the book because of their interest in the first Thanksgiving, but they're going to get a whole lot more than a very careful, deliberate, and uh, fascinating account of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving. Professor McKenzie gives us so much to think about in this book. The role of history in the life of any intelligent person is a huge issue. To cut ourselves off from the past is to rob ourselves of understanding the present. Just about everyone knows that's true, and yet few, I think, ponder exactly what the consequences of that kind of deliberate ignorance turn out to be. But beyond that deliberate ignorance is the sometimes undeliberate or accidental misunderstanding of history that can come to us in ways that are almost equally injurious. Getting the past wrong is almost as problematic as not getting the past in our minds at all. 
What we're looking at here is the fact that Christians have a particular stewardship of the mind and of the intellect that should lead us to understand that our discipleship of Christ is at stake in terms of our understanding of the past. As is so often the case, and as he makes so clear with reference to the first Thanksgiving, the true story is not less interesting than the misunderstood, misrepresented story. It's always more. The greater is always filled with more for us than the lesser. And the artificial history pales in comparison to the real. The real story of the pilgrims, the real story of Plymouth, the real story of the first Thanksgiving is far more interesting and far more instructive to all of us than the misremembered or misrepresented history. And when you come to contemporary debates over Thanksgiving, there is a real debate to be had. But part of it's a theological debate, part of it's an historical debate, a lot of it's a cultural and political debate. It takes a good and honest historian, a skilled historian, using all the tools of historiography to tell us what really happened, as best as it can be understood, letting the past speak to us as authentically as is possible, given the tools and the task of history. On the other hand, history isn't the end of the story. That's where Christians have to turn to theology and turn to our understanding drawn from the Scriptures to understand how we should think of thankfulness and thanksgiving right now. Tracy McKenzie sets the record straight in so many ways, and that clears the way for a better, clearer understanding of thanksgiving in our lives and what it means to be a pilgrim people. Reading a book like this is to enter a world of intellectual conversation that involves a cast of hundreds by the time you finish this book, But you also enter into a narrative that gets clearer and more important as it becomes more accurate and more understood. We can't go back to that first Thanksgiving, and given the deprivations and the tragedies that people had experienced, we probably wouldn't want to. But our task is not to go back, but rather in the present to consider what understanding the past now gives us the opportunity to do, to be more faithful, to think more clearly, and indeed, in the sense of the first Thanksgiving, to be even more thankful. In that spirit, I wish to you and yours a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on March 14 through 15, 2014, for the renowned Youth Conference. God has revealed himself to be more valuable than anything and everything in all of creation. And that is precisely why we as Christians must think and why apologetics matter. Apologetics is the art of defending the Christian faith. At the renowned conference, we will seek to equip this generation's middle and high school age students with the arsenal of God's word as they do battle against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. For more information, go to sbts.edu forward slash events. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.